I think for a lot of people with ADHD, especially women with ADHD, like you can't self-compassion your way out of things when like you feel like the systems around you just aren't working for you and like your brain isn't working the way you would want it to work. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Alrighty, here we are at episode 143, in which I interviewed Karen Gill. Karen is a licensed professional counselor who specializes in OCD and anxiety disorders, and now also ADHD, thanks to her own diagnosis late last year. Karen currently works in private practice, but has worn many hats in the past as a clinical trainer and educator and as a music therapist working in hospitals and various clinics. She lives and works in Pennsylvania and is also licensed in Connecticut, California, and Missouri. Karen talks about how her diagnosis has changed her work with clients, and we talk about her choice to be open about her own diagnosis when some therapists with ADHD tend to, quote, hide in the shadows about their condition. We also talk about neurodivergent anxiety and burnout and some of the root causes and the need to develop boundaries and give ourselves space to be understimulated and underwhelmed in order to self-regulate and move beyond overwhelm. You can head to Karen's website for a free crash course on building your counter strategy to attack OCD and anxiety. That link is in the episode show notes. Okay, here is my interview with Karen. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I know you've been working as a professional counselor for about 10 years now, right? Uh, well, I was licensed in 2018, but I was, I've been working in the field since uh, 2013. Wow. <laughs> okay, gotcha. All right. So, but your diagnosis of ADHD is relatively new, right? Correct. Yeah. So I was diagnosed in December of last year, 2022. Um, pretty, yeah. So pretty recently, but I've sort of, kind of self-diagnosed in a way for a little longer than that. It was just more of like, ah, do I need to get a formal diagnosis? Do I need a full eval? But then I was like, yeah, well, like, let me just do it just to, just to kind of make sure, you know, um, and confirm what I had been suspecting for, for a while at that point. I know. Right. I'm like, you, is it, you know, whatever people ask is a professional diagnosis necessary. I'm like, it is, but it isn't, but it is, but it isn't like we diagnose ourselves. I think so much, long before we ever actually talked to a clinician. So what exactly was going on in your life that you related to that you started thinking, okay, maybe this is maybe this is ADHD? Sure. So it was kind of at the beginning of the pandemic that my sister had actually like suggested, I guess she had spoken to a doctor herself. Um, and she was, she, she was like, Oh, the doctor actually suggested or brought up the possibility of ADHD. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, that's not, that's not us. Right. Um, and then, you know, she sent me something from like, I think like attitude magazine or something. And I was like, holy cow. Right. Like this is, this is me like to a, to a T. And so previous to that, like I had always just thought that I was 
anxious or, you know, struggling with depression or just kind of stressed. Right. And it was always like, Oh, once, once things calm down, I'll like have my life together. Once things calm down, you know, or like maybe this, this, maybe it's just like, once I get to like a more, once I, once I just like have the time to like clean my apartment or clean my house, like I'll be fine. Right. And it just never seemed to ever resolve. It it was like, no matter what, like it would follow me wherever I went, whatever job I had. And so I think I realized also as an anxiety therapist, working with people who actually have generalized anxiety disorder, I, I sit there and I'm like, I don't relate to this. Like, this isn't me. Like I I'm stressed all the time. Like I'm worried about things all the time, but like, I don't, I don't relate to you. Right. Like I don't, I don't really understand why you're so worried about these things yet. We're supposedly supposed to be very similar because we have the same diagnosis or whatever. And so I was like, well, I I have some like on the surface, some similarities with people with generalized anxiety disorder in the sense that I have trouble relaxing or I'm kind of like my mind's always going, but it was always just like a little off to me having that diagnosis. So I think I always kind of felt like there's something different about what I'm experiencing yeah, that's oh wow, that's so interesting. Um, because I was also diagnosed with anxiety, and I feel like I'm not without anxiety. Sure, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I certainly have a lot of anxiety, especially social anxiety. But a lot of my anxiety diagnoses were around postpartum anxiety, and they were much more kind of intrusive thoughts and fear based. So it's been interesting to think about those diagnoses, because so many of us are diagnosed with anxiety long before an ADHD diagnosis. So it's there. But I, I think, yeah, it can look so different depending on, on how it presents and, and why. Yeah, yeah. So your sister was having similar pandemic issues? Right. Yeah. And I, funny enough, I don't know if she ever went in to get like a full eval or anything either. But I think like, her bringing it up and passing was really the spark. And, you know, like reading more about it, it was like a light bulb went off. And I was talking to somebody the other day, I forget who, but basically I was like, it was almost like all of the foreshadowing. It's like watching, looking back on a movie you just finished and being like, the foreshadowing. Oh my gosh, there was so much foreshadowing. Like, that's what it felt like to finally realize. I was like, wait a second, this is me. <laughs> Oh my god, right? It's like going back and watching the uh what was the I see dead people movie? Oh, uh, the suspense. <laughs> right? The six it's like going back and rewatching that. Like eating by herself, no wonder. Or like, you know, <laughs> it makes no sense. Oh, um, uh, that's such a perfect description of that feeling of like going over our whole lives with this fine tooth comb, just being like, oh my goodness. And I think also too, it's like one of the things for me was like, I didn't even acknowledge how much I was struggling in certain situations until my diagnosis where I had to look back and be like, oh yeah, like I really, really struggled in school in these ways, right? There were some ways I didn't, but there were some ways where I was like, oh, I didn't realize this wasn't a universal experience, that this was something unique to me or to ADHD. Uh, So I'm curious when looking back in your childhood and over the course of your life and parenting and all that, like what were some of the things that jumped out at you as like, as the signs were there all along moments? Right. So this is one of probably like one of my favorite (laughs) stories to tell was when I was in like grade school, like third through sixth grade, I was really into art. 
And I loved like painting, like I loved like studying about all the artists and like, especially like 19th century, like expressionism <laughs> was like my thing. And so in school, we were learning about cave paintings and the assignment was to recreate a painting. And so I only heard recreate painting, totally missed the context of cave painting. So I worked really hard on, on recreating like this Edward Munch painting, The Scream, like oil paint, like it was like a full canvas. Like I was so proud of it. And I walk into school and I was like, oh, <laughs> like, uh, one of these things is not like the other. Like, why doesn't like why? Where are all the other paintings? Right. Like everyone was walking in with like a cave painting recreations. And my teacher, like, I think she gave me a good grade because she saw how much effort I had put into it. But like, I just would miss details like that. Or I would forget, like I would have memories of like doing science fair projects or like school assignments the night before because I would forget that um they were due right or like in school sometimes you would have to wear certain things there were certain themed days and I would just show up like not knowing like that it was happening or just like things like that or like I I remember when I think back to school like I remember like these vivid memories of me just sitting at the kitchen counter like trying to do my homework and just feeling so like, like, I was like, I just can't do it. Like I just, it physically feels like I can't do it. And I would just need so much time just to a get into it and b to complete it. And I would stay up till like past midnight, especially in high school. Like I would stay up like so late, just finishing homework. Cause it was just so hard. And I just always thought like, Oh, well that's because I'm an honor student and like school is hard. Like I thought it was normal And the idea of like people like having jobs and doing like all these other things, it just would boggle my mind. I'm like, how do people do it? Like, I I don't know. I just thought they were overachievers and I was a slacker when really it was like these these other things going on. Oh my gosh, that's so relatable. Yeah, you know, it's funny, um, especially the part about like always feeling like there was something that you missed. Right. (laughs) I think that's a very common experience for us where there was like a detail where it's like, is that is that just like that we rush things? Because I see that with my son with math. My son is very, very good at math, but he has this issue where like he will go too quickly and he'll miss something and he doesn't, you know, math is really difficult to self-edit, right? Like you don't know if you've got a question wrong. And so he'll sometimes, he'll do really, really well in math, but then other times he'll get like a 50 because he had the same error over and over and over again, because he was convinced that he was doing it a certain way. And and I'm like, that feels so ADHD to me, that feeling of just like forging ahead <laughs> without self-editing in in those. But it was really interesting to me to hear this concept of being stuck on input that I, we've talked about. I've talked about this in past episodes about, you know, one of the difficulties in it's like a processing issue, right? Where it's like we're very good at taking in information, but it's really difficult for us to then turn around and process that information into an essay or into like a thought, right? Like for me in school, that really made me feel very dumb because I was like, I don't know what I need to do. Like I'm reading everything. I'm attending classes. Like I, I'm understanding it, I think. But then when it's time for me to turn around and actually prove that I understand that, I would just be completely paralyzed. Right, right. I, I, it's like the, um, it's like life just feels like one giant word document with like the little, like, what, what the, the little blinky thing. Um, <laughs> the cursor. The cursor. Yeah. Just kind of like staring at you. Like, it's just, it, yeah, it's an awful feeling. And I think even as an adult, right? So I'm in, I'm in private practice and I just came off of maternity leave. And so that's like a whole nother ball game. And I'm like, 
in my head, like cognitively, I know what I need to do to like market and get clients and like establish a practice. And it's like, but in my head, I, I could probably tell other people how to do it, but like, I don't know how to do it for myself. <laughs> like, it's just like a whole nother thing. So it's the same. It's like the adult equivalent of writing an essay, I think. <laughs> right? Yeah, I like that. You you have a gift for metaphor. I like the metaphor of the cursor, too. <laughs> it kind of makes sense now. I'm like, oh, it's because like, I'm like, really, my brain is just like constantly making connections with things, um, which I think is a gift. But, you know, it also can make it hard when I'm trying to just focus on one thing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've worked with several therapists at this point now who all really struggle with client notes for that reason. Right. Like client notes are like the bane of their existence. (laughs) Right. When everything is so nuanced and interconnected, you know, it's like, how do I even put this into words? Right. Yeah. Like I've had to kind of train myself to almost like purposely be what I would perceive as like overly vague because then that's it's just enough (laughs) and so I'm like this is a bad note but then I'm like oh it actually just needs like everybody's like all the auditors think they're fine right you're like it just needs to be done yeah (laughs) right exactly so now how did you get involved then in you know specializing in OCD and anxiety what was there I I feel like there was some kind of personal relationship to that. Right, right. Yeah, it was actually, I kind of joked that it was an accident. Like, I know some people, they're like, oh, yeah, like, I studied in grad school. Like, I, like, purposely, like, only, like, I specialized on it and, like, on purpose because I, like, for me, it was, I was working inpatient and I was so burnt out. It's sort of like somebody with ADHD is, like, nightmare because it's very routine and rigid, but it's also really unpredictable and, like, overstimulating from, like, a sensory perspective. And it's also just really draining, right, like, physically and emotionally. Um, and so I was really burnt out. And at the time, I was like, well, I really like doing hair and makeup. Like, I was doing my own hair, like, doing foils on myself and, like, you know, like just, like, love makeup, right? And so I was like, maybe I'll go to beauty school. I was like, let me switch careers all together, even though I have my master's degree and all that kind of stuff. Like, let me just impulsively quit my job and look in the beauty school. And then I got pregnant. And so then I was like, well, I should probably get a job that's like stable. Right. And so I applied to work at this clinic and I was like, I don't know anything about OCD. I've worked inpatient, like so substance use, schizophrenia, like uh, all of like more, much more, not I want to say severe because OCD can also be very severe, but just not necessarily OCD. So I took the job and loved it. Now looking back, I'm like, yeah, this was totally an ADHD thing where I just was like so hyper-focused on it. Like I would like listen to podcasts all about it on my way to work, on my way home from work, I would read books. So very quickly it became kind of like a thing that I knew a lot about and I was really good at it. So that's how I kind of fell into the OCD world. (laughs) That's fascinating because I actually was just recently doing a a presentation in class about anxiety and hadn't really thought about how much overlap there was until all of the good anxiety resources were all coming from the International OCD Society. Or it was anxietyinthclassroom.org was this amazing resource and it was all coming from the OCD world. And I was like, oh, right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Because, you know, I think OCD is one of those, it falls under one of those uh, diagnoses many of us receive before ADHD. I think there is a lot of overlap there. And in terms of controlling your environment, right? And that 
you know, I feel like there's so many different diagnoses that all come back to a desire for control, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's fascinating to me how all the many ways in which we look at the for we we miss the forest for the trees or whatever the phrasing should be. Yeah, I never really understood that phrase. Um, but yeah, they, they, they go together a lot, but they're kind of qualitatively very different, sort of like how um, anxiety and ADHD can kind of like look very similar, but the quality of them are, are very different. But not to say you can't have both, right? Like lots of people have both. You know, ADHD kind of is like, it's, it's really common. So like the odds are that if you have, something else like you probably I mean, you might also have ADHD. Um, and so but but I think like a lot of people are misdiagnosed, especially in the idea of like, well, I have to feel right in order to begin this. But that can also very like, you know, as somebody with ADHD, it's like, yeah, I, I relate to that. Like, I have to want to do it. And it has to feel like the right moment, right. But that's not necessarily OCD, right? it kind of gets lumped under like just right OCD, for example, or I've had intakes of people who are like, yeah, I have to check all my locks and my stoves and my appliances. And I heard that that's an OCD thing. And then you just dig a little bit deeper and you're like, oh no, you have a history of leaving your stove on. Like that's, that's way different. <laughs> that's, that's very different than somebody who like with their own two eyes can see that it's turned off and still doubting it. Right. And so they run together a lot, but they're, they're kind of incredibly, they're different also at the same time. Now I'm thinking about those repetitive behaviors um, in terms of like anxiety and needing to check if I the stove is left or, you know, remind me of some of the elaborate systems that many of us came up with to manage executive dysfunction and how I've talked about like, I never thought I lost my keys because I had very, you know, elaborate ways so that I didn't lose them, which you're right, must come from a history of losing things. Right. It's the function of them are different. It's it's just like functionally different. And like the yeah, the the reason behind them is different. Like the kind of subjective experience of that is different. But on the surface it looks the same. So I think this is like where like really good clinical um skills come in handy, right? When when you're meeting with a therapist or if you are a therapist, kind of trying to suss things out. It's it's important because things can look the same on the surface. It's like those snakes that look the same, but one's poisonous and one's not like, it's like, yeah, you gotta, can't, you can't just rely on what things look like. Right. Mm, so how has your, how has your ADHD diagnosis changed your view of, of OCD and anxiety? Basically what I was just saying is like, it's important really to not just go based off of like the DSM checklist and be like, check, 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 check. But also like, how does it feel to experience these these symptoms, right? Like how, what, what is the, like, what is the why behind, behind these behaviors? So like, are you really rigid about, you know, where you put your keys down and how you go about things? Because if you don't follow that rigidity, it it kind of falls apart, right? Or is it because like you've, there's like other kind of rules and like expectations, is it like rigidity due for other reasons, right? The differences can really point to different treatment and like different names that we we refer to things as. Yeah, that's what I always sort of have complained about in in with therapy in the past and I think why a lot of people with ADHD have had kind of problematic past relationship with therapy 
and this is such a blanket statement. I mean, obviously everybody's different, but I feel like one of the things that I wish there had been more curiosity about with my depression and anxiety diagnosis is the why, like you said, right? Like it almost felt like I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety, like it was this, like it was a genetic condition, which I suppose it can be, right? Like, I feel like it's treated very often by clinicians, like it's this thing that you just have, and nobody knows where it came from, but you just have it, and now we need to treat it. And and now looking back at this ADHD, di- through the lens of this ADHD diagnosis, I'm like, why weren't we more curious about the why, <laughs> um, especially around the anxiety? And And so I think that's one of the things where People who are diagnosed in adulthood feel kind of like they had been let down by a therapeutic relationship because there was this just fundamental misunderstanding about behaviors or something. Sure. That's I think this is my new hyper focus is therapy and neurodivergent therapy, right? And because I feel like as a coach, it felt like counseling and a therapy and coaching need to go hand in hand. Right. And so I think a lot of therapists end up going into coaching or adopting coaching methods with neurodivergent clients. But as a coming at it from a, as from a coach, I was like using a lot of, I felt like I was working with a lot of clients who had trauma and, and weren't seeing a therapist because they felt like, well, therapies, therapists don't get me right. I've had bad experiences with therapy. And what I really want is to like fix this and move on and move forward and be actionable. I don't want to talk about my childhood. And I was like, but no, you really need to like unpack some of this stuff before we can move forward. (laughs) When I would talk about the shame I would feel about like just kind of not being able to keep up with things or feeling like so like, like I couldn't get things done the way I wanted them to or, you know, just feeling frustrated with myself. I think a lot of well-meaning therapists come at it, like would come at it with me from like a sense of like, oh, like, why are you feeling shame? Like, you know, like, it's okay to feel that way. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, it's very, very painful for me. Like, I don't want to feel this way. I'm tired of feeling like this, right? Like, like, yes, like, I don't think I'm like inherently like a bad person, but I feel like, like, I don't know if I could curse, but like, I feel like, oh, yeah, like, I just feel like a piece of shit all the time. You know what I mean? And like, that is, there is a reason for that. And like, I just want somebody to like validate that reason. I think that is missing sometimes when you have a therapist who, especially with like the whole like self compassion and like not feeling ashamed of who you are and like shame and perfectionism. I'm like, yeah, that's all great. Right. But I think for a lot of people with ADHD, especially women with ADHD, like, you can't self-compassion your way out of things when like you feel like the systems around you just aren't working for you. And like your brain isn't working the way you would want it to work. And it can get really frustrating and like actually inadvertently like feel very invalidating. Yeah. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, 
and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. But then on the flip side, I think there's also that issue, which I certainly experienced as a coach before I was diagnosed with ADHD and really understood executive dysfunction, which was you know, having clients and we would work together and be like, okay, this week I'm going to do the thing. And then they would come back the week later and they didn't do the thing because even as much as they wanted to do the thing, they were incapable of doing that. And I didn't know enough about executive dysfunction. So I felt like a terrible coach because I couldn't get them to do the thing. And they felt like a terrible person because they couldn't get, and we always felt, you know, I always felt like we were at this impasse of failure uh, you know, mutual failure. And, and now with knowing what I know about executive dysfunction, I'm like, oh, it was never about desire, right? It was always about ability and strategy and all of that. So I just feel like they work, they're so intertwined. And that's why I'm obsessed with trying to get more therapists understanding what ADHD looks like, especially in adult women and So I'm curious for you too, like how has your diagnosis affected how you are as a therapist? Because I know you had also said that your ADHD affects you professionally, it affects your colleague relationships, but also work-life balance and burnout, right, is a huge thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think it it impacts like how I'm able to work in such a vague statement. But like, I think for me, I need kind of constant breaks. And I think there's like such a, you know, working, I I had worked for like a big kind of telehealth company for, um, it seems like it's actually not that long of a time, but I feel like pandemic years skews everything. It was like like two and a half years, right? But I think working in in a tech company, like a telehealth company, where everyone has access to everybody's Google calendars, just in seeing like what's blocked off and everything. It's like, well, what's all this white space for then? And it's like, well, I, I, my brain like literally like needs it, right? Even if I didn't have ADHD, I don't think it's healthy to be in meetings for eight hours a day. But when you're working in like a very productivity growth startup culture, 
you feel like a like a giant like lazy failure if you're not able to keep up. I think also like in private practice, like we we get paid per service, right? We're paid by how much time face to face client time we have, and so it's also really tempting. Like I I would get into the habit of like suddenly I would look at my calendar with a sense of doom and be like I have nine hours of face-to-face client sessions booked today. I have no time to eat, no time to use the bathroom. And there was that kind of like, I couldn't understand, like, I guess like time blindness, right? Like I didn't understand like, oh, if I just schedule this person, like that's another hour, right? Like that's not like, it's an abstract concept like on my Google calendar. And so I've had to kind of implement a lot of limits of like blocking things off, even though in the moment I'm like, I don't need lunch. <laughs> and it's like, no, you need lunch, right? Like, no, like having, you know, a, a strict start and end time, that's actually a good thing. And I think like colleague relationships, like I am somebody who craves human connection, right? Like I love, I'm like one of those nerds. I actually really like icebreakers. I like networking and like meeting people, um, not for any personal game, but just cause I'm, I'm like a chit chatter, you know, I didn't know what it was at the time, but like RSD was huge when like, I would like not be invited to certain meetings, not because I like wasn't good at what I did or that they, not because they didn't value my input or my perspectives, but just because like I really wasn't needed. Right. But it felt really, really painful. And I was aware, I was like, this is not rational, right? Like this, this feeling of feeling left out all the time, it was just like not good for my psyche, I think. And so I had to do a lot of work to really take a step back and be like, okay, like I'm, I'm not being like excluded I'm not like a bad employee or I'm not bad at my job because I'm not everything to everyone all at once. Right. I don't need to be like excellent at everything and me not being added to some random Slack channel doesn't mean that like I'm not valued. I think there was some truth to it, honestly, but I think it just felt very, very personal to me and it was much more painful than I think it was to really anybody else on my team when I would talk to them about it, they're like, it's okay. Like, it's just work. And I'm like, but you don't understand. (laughs) Like, this is my identity. Like, this is everything I am, you know? Oh my gosh. That reminds, it's so poignant too. Like, that's why I left Facebook was very much of that RSD, which I, you know, that FOMO all the time of feeling like I would see pictures of two other people I knew hanging out together and I would just feel so rejected. And I really, and, but I, like you said, like, I knew it was not a rational reaction where I'm like, I didn't need to be invited to everything, right? Like there people are other people can hang out together and you know they've known each other for much longer. Like I always had these rational reasons, but it was painful to that level of FOMO that was I would experience from social media and still do, right? Where I'm just like I need to get off of here. In terms of needing to be everywhere and showing up in all ways, I think I think it's interesting if it's a time blindness thing, but I think it's also this like the belief that any sign of incompetence is somehow failure, right? So I think there's like a masking element to that needing to show up and be all there, all the things for all people, right? Like there, it is a real sense of like, I need people to see that I am the very best at everything, or I need that, I need that validation. Right, right. Yeah. And also I, like, I kind of feel like it's also a sense of hyperactivity. Like if I don't do this now, I'm never going to get to it. I think that's been more applicable 
you know, starting this small business, like a private practice, it's like, I'm like, Oh, I want to get certified in this. And I want to do this. And I want to specialize in this. And I want to do this. And I want to like go and make the, you know, and I'm like, I don't need to do all of this all at once. But I have this fear of like, if I don't get to it, it doesn't exist. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to forget it. Like, if I don't capitalize on this, I'm going to miss the train completely. And that's it. Right. And I think people who don't have ADHD would just be like, oh, well, that's on my like five-year plan. And I'm like, I don't have a five-year plan. It's now or never. And that's so stressful. Like there'd be times where I would just like feel so overwhelmed. And I, I end up like, it's one of those things where because I'm not focused or trying to like just devote my focus and my attention to one thing at a time, I end up doing like a lot of things really badly um, or like, you know, not fully or not really well prepared or thought out. And I say yes to a lot of things that like I probably shouldn't say yes to. And then I'm stressed out and burnt out. And so, yeah, the hyperactivity piece, I think it shows up in like different ways. Like I'm not like an eight-year-old boy that's bouncing off the walls necessarily, but I think I'm like mentally hyperactive in that sense. Oh yeah. Right. And, and, and it's so true what you say about like managing our energy and how a lot of the time we end up burnt out on things because we're doing all the things we love to do and we're really excitable. And I think that is a sign of that hyperactivity, that excitability and that, that desire to do things now, the urgency of it all. But like we say, yeah, saying yes to all of the things. I've talked about this on the podcast too before um, a woman, she's like a life coach and she was talking about how she manages her schedule. And she says like, if it's not a hell yes, then it's a no. And so if she's not like super excited about something, she won't do it as a way to manage her energy. And I remember at the time, this was before my diagnosis, thinking like, but what do you do when everything feels like a hell yes, right? Like I I feel like I want to do all the things and then I end up working seven days a week and then I don't, you know, like I don't force the, that downtime like you talked about with the nine clients. Like you genuinely, there's some part of you that genuinely wants to see as many people as possible and help as many people as possible. But if you don't manage your energy, you're not going to, you're not going to be your best self for anybody, including yourself. Because there's also this idea of like, well, what's another hour, right? <laughs> like, what's another hour, right? Or like, well, I could do that. What's, yeah, whatever. What's another hour? I was like laughing when you were saying like, if everything, if it's not a hell yes, like everything's a hell yes, but like maybe it's like some things are just like a heck yes. Like I don't know. <laughs> like I don't. <laughs> like I, there has to be some sort of like gradual kind of a scale to it, right? Yeah. And like I think for me, it's like if everything is so exciting and I don't know where to start, I just sit there. And I just am like, oh, I just go on TikTok then. Like, I don't know. Like, I can't. Like, I end up just not doing anything, which is also a problem for sure. Well, I, th- I feel like I have to be very strict in terms of categorizing my boundary. Like, so for instance, like I will have a limit to how many people I can talk to in a day because I know where I'm like, even though it feels like I want to do them all, I have like a very like numeric limits because I, I'm like, we know what happens. We've seen what happens when you see too many people, you end up being burnt out or canceling. And so, so, and same with like, I have to not do any work on Saturday. It's just a non-negotiable because otherwise I would. And so I'm just like, I have to draw that line in the sand. It's like, current me has to look out for future me because future me is uh, and then future me is appreciative but I feel like it's been I've had to be so strict about what I I like even coming up to those moments like before you even come to that moment I guess is what I'm trying to say like I'm 
I don't feel like I'm articulating it well, but it's like when I'm in the moment, I'm not very good at making those decisions. So like at, when I'm in a calm, regulated state, that's when I have to make those decisions about my boundaries. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like I read, I don't, where, I don't remember where I read this, but something about how like our brains are really developed for like crises. Our kind of ability to, to kind of see everything and think about everything all at once and be really like, it's it's helpful in that sense. When things are calm, it's kind of like, oh, what do we do? Like we're like, ah, like we need we need like that kind of stimulation. And so, like for me, I almost have to purposely underwhelm myself to kind of like be at a good level. Like this weekend, I don't have any plans on Saturday. In my head, I'm like, oh, we have plans tonight. I have plans on Sunday. I have plans on Monday, and. I'm like, no, Saturday, like I need to like actually leave that as white space. You know, like I need, I need that empty space and I know I'm going to be grateful for it. Like, right. But sometimes it's really hard to be in that space in the moment, right. Where it's like, it, you know, I can, I can schedule in that downtime, but it, oftentimes it's excruciating to do nothing. <laughs> right. Right. And I think that's also like, it kind of points to that idea. It's like the um, larger equivalent of like when I'm trying to leave the house on time and I have 10 minutes, I'm like, I can do this. I can do this thing really quick. Right. It was 9.50 and I'm like, oh, I should probably like try to log on. I'm like, I have time to paint my nails. I'm like, no, Karen, you do not. I'm like, do not paint your nails. Like, <laughs> you do not have time to paint your nails. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. I know. I always I always set a 10 minute timer on my watch uh, before, before I'm supposed to log on. And it's always amazing to me the things I think I can do in that 10 minute time period. Right. right. <laughs> I, yeah. It's, it's been like a definitely a, pers- a perspective shift and like, okay, if I want to do things well or like what I if I want to feel good about what I'm doing, um, I'm trying not to use like judgy language towards myself, but like, if I want to feel good about what I'm doing, I need to actually do less <laughs> and like commit to less. And it's, it's okay. Cause like less is actually like just enough, you know, it's like a weird, like mind shift. Um, you know, even clinically, if I want to do something well, I can't suddenly become an expert in everything. Right. Like I, I kind of have to, to just focus on, on one thing at a time. And that's okay. Like, that's actually like a really good thing for my brain. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I was thinking about um, burnout and burnout as a counselor. One of the things I was surprised when I was doing some research into burnout and it was for an ethics class. And so we were talking about the ethical implications of burnout and impairment. And one of the things that was listed as a common factor toward counselor burnout was the inherent ambiguity of problems, you know, working with clients. And I found that really interesting because that's like, I feel like inherent ambiguity is something a lot of neurodivergent brains struggle with, right? Like we have very rigid thinking. We're such so problem solving oriented that when you can't jump in and solve problems, it can be super stressful. I'm worried about that in terms of my own practice. Is there a way that you deal with that? Yeah, totally. I think when I found, you know, OCD treatment, I was like, oh, this is like very concrete. It's very active, right? Like we're doing stuff in session. And then, um, you know, when I started to practice, I, I kind of took on some more kind of like general mental health talk therapy clients. And I remember really struggling. Like I just was like for (laughs) considering my job is literally to listen to people. Like I am not good at this. Right. 
and I've, I've kind of had to take a shift. Like I talked to one of my friends and she was like, yeah, just, just imagine that you're like listening to a story and you're picking up on plot points. And, I'm, and that I, honestly helped me so much, but like, I think like the inherent ambiguity of like, how is this going to be solved? When is this going to be solved? What does that look like? Right. Like that, I think is like, that was like inpatient work to a T, right. Or like working with like trauma or like people who are in like really high risk situations. It's like, I think I, and this is just like a quick, like kind of hypothesis in my head. I wonder if there's a connection between that and like the kind of orientation towards justice and like kind of feeling really like frustrated at injustice and like because it's like there are solutions and why aren't we implementing the solutions and like this is not okay and why can't we just do this right like like am i not okay with things being just like that's just how things are when like the solution's right there like why aren't we implementing it well and i really struggle with that feeling of like it's up to me to solve the problem right which is something that as a therapist you have to you can't like you have to resist that right? <laughs> actively resist that. And so I'm always sort of like, where is that coming from? Why is is that a control response, which is sort of, you know, that feeling of like, oh, I see somebody in need. It's up to me to make them feel better. It's up to me to help them. And how can I solve their problem for them? Right. Yeah. Where's that coming from? That's what I'm curious about. Yeah, that is an interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Because I think you're right. I think it is it, it is something that like we see a lot of in that justice oriented mindset and that like intense empathy and compassion fatigue and all of that stuff that I think a lot of us experience. Not to mention like the impulsivity, like in, in meetings, like I kind of had a reputation for being like very fiery. I would go on these like like sermons, you know, essentially. And like at first it was good when it was good. And when it was like not actually working, it was bad. Right. And I think I can come across as very passionate at best and like kind of like strong in a bad way, at, you know, because like I just can't keep my mouth shut sometimes. Like I always joke, like I can't stop running my mouth, right? Like I've been like trying to like censor myself in ways, um, which can be tough, right? But I think recognizing that like I don't need to do like that's not something I I have to do I don't have to share myself with everybody <laughs> in that sense right Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement whether mom's into classic dress watches rare and refined ceramics or tried and true bestsellers movement has something she'll love and right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Well, I, I feel like I've gotten better at giving somebody at least a morning. Like, I'll do that with my family members, especially my husband, where I'm like, okay, I am about to go on a side tangent. So if you don't want to listen to this, like, you need to let me know now, because once I get started, I won't be able to stop. So I'm always like, this is your last exit before my soapbox. Right. It's like info dumping, but like about something that you're angry about, right? Like, that's what yeah. it feels like to me. It's the same feeling as like talking about something that I'm like really happy and excited about about but like the quality it's like it's like now i'm just like angry about this so like venting and like info dumping to me are like the same thing it's just different flavors yeah (laughs) right but you're right i think there is that impulsivity element that i think gets misconstrued as 
like hogging the conversation or making it all about you, right? Or some of the ways in which our ADHD behaviors are interpreted as being antisocial behaviors, where it's like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is really exciting and important that everybody needs to know that I can't help myself. Right. Yeah. Like, I just want to share this with you because it's so exciting to me. And I want you to know about this really amazing thing where there's a really good idea or this thing, this issue that's really important. So now have you, have you talked about your diagnosis with any of your family? I mentioned it to, I mean, I've talked about it with my sisters and I mentioned it to my mom and it's like funny because my sister's a psychiatrist and I'm a therapist and like coming from a family who like never really talked about mental health other than like in the sense of like, oh, she's struggling. She probably needs to like pray or go to a retreat or something like that. Um, I think it's just funny that we both ended up like two out of three of us are in like the mental health field. But yeah, my mom was like, who said that? Who told you that? And I'm like, I literally am a therapist. And and I went to a psychologist and he like ran all these tests on me and like evaluated me and everything. Like, it's not like an online personality quiz that I took. Like I (laughs) did the full shebang, right? (laughs) And like my one sister, my psychiatrist sister, probably, I think she sees it. She's like, oh yeah. And then my other sister is like, you don't have ADHD. Like you, you did great in school. And I'm like, that really has nothing to do with it. Like I was, it was a lot of work. I felt like I worked twice as hard to just get through, you know? Yeah. So it is interesting. Right. I know. And I think a lot of parents too almost see it like as an attack on their parenting because I think it is so certain generations really did feel like that was just poor parenting, right? Like, oh, those kids just need more discipline or they need more more intervention. I think, you know, there are parents who are like, what are you talking about? I don't, you were fine. You were fine. Because if you weren't fine, that was somehow something they missed or reflect, you know, it's an indication that they failed you somehow. And that's can be really hard. I mean, I feel like that with my own kids, even, which is just like, how did I, how did we not see this? Right? What was I doing? And I was at the screens, like I let him have too many screens and now he has a Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay, so now if you could rename ADHD, do you would you call it something else? I like I saw I heard somebody say we refer to it as like attention regulation hyperactivity disorder, which I I like that. And like I think that the word disorder is kind of like very loaded. I think of it as like, yes, it, it impacts us in a very negative way. Like I was actually just thinking about this this morning, actually, about like, what constitutes a disorder and what constitutes something like just like a the way that people are born and like the way our brains work. Is the disorder coming from within? Like, are we experiencing distress because of this? And I think that could be true for like things like OCD or um, depression or bipolar or things like that, right? Or is it dysfunctional because of like the external environment? Like, me trying to fit into this like very like neurotypical mental health tech startup and kind of being looked down upon for needing breaks and like people like on the the leadership team would literally go in and look at people's calendars and say like well why do they have so many breaks scheduled right and I'm like well wow I would like that like I've been from that right like but that was seen as like a oh she's trying to work the system you know and so it's like is it is it external like it's would they function great if if they didn't have to worry about like meeting other people's standards or whatever. Yeah. And that gets into a whole other can of worms. <laughs> right. It's like, it's well, it's like nap culture in, 
you know, where it's like all of the evidence, all of the statistics, all of the studies show that if you allow your employees to take a nap in the afternoon, that they're actually more productive in the morning and it and after their nap. And and capitalist society is like, no, we no, that is not a thing. 30 minutes for lunch and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think we're seeing the same thing with work from home culture, which is like for for all intents and purposes, like people are doing better. Right. Workplaces are more productive. Like people are really performing better. But there's just this mentality of like, no, we don't know what you're doing. And if we can't control when you're at your desk and what you're, you know, how many breaks you're taking, we need to have you in the office so we can watch you. And you're like, but all evidence is pointing to the contrary. Right. Like, it doesn't matter. Like you get penalized if you're like caught off task. Like there's like programs and software that like companies will use to track like where you're clicking your mouse movement i know i know right yeah yeah not even just mouse movement but like where are you clicking yeah and how long are you away from like your computer and I'm like that's messed up like who cares how long it takes me like you know it's just so bizarre to me uh but yeah so I lovingly refer to it as like hot mess disorder um i think it also you know attention regulation hyperactivity syndrome maybe or like brain settings like i I don't know yeah i like syndrome like you said i when i was first started this podcast and i still don't even really have an answer to this where i'm like what are we talking about when we talk about adhd are we talking about a brain type a neurotype that in certain environments ends up in distress and so the adhd is the distress behaviors that is that the ADHD and so the neurotype is something separate or is the neurotype ADHD and everybody is prone to this right so it's like what is universal what isn't because our obviously our experiences are also different but then you look at certain cultures where ADHD quote unquote doesn't exist and you're like well is that because the culture is much more friendly to this neurotype or are they refusing to acknowledge it <laughs> like all of these ways in which I'm like what are we talking about when we talk about ADHD I still don't really know it's like everything and all all of it all wrapped up into one but it's very it's really frustrating when I see in psychology textbooks talking about ADHD like it's this disorder where it's like people with ADHD are prone to alcoholism. And you're like, well, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's like, well, why? I think like my biggest question I always want to ask is like, well, why? Right? Like, what is behind that? Right? You're prone to sell you're prone to substance abuse because you're self-medicating because you're struggling and nobody realizes it. And like, you know, I'm like, there's so much there. Just Right. Or it feels good and you're just impulsive and you have like blindness to like you 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 forget your working memory is bad. Like, you know, it could be for so many reasons. Like you can get ten people with ADHD who also struggle with alcohol use and it could be all for different reasons, right? So yeah, it's it's so interesting. Yeah, see there's that inherent ambiguity again that's driving me crazy. <laughs> like I need answers. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It is interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much for for sharing your perspective. I love it. It's just great. So now your website is KarenGillTherapy.com, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my website. I know you're based in Pennsylvania, but you, you're licensed in a bunch of different states. Do you still do tele, telehealth? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing telehealth still, for the most part, in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Missouri, and California. And I joke, people are like, why Missouri? And I'm like, honestly, it was easy. <laughs> like, like, I, as many, like, as soon as there was like obstacles of like, oh, you have to contact your old two, I was like, no, next, next. Like, 
So that's that's how I got uh, licensed in all those states. I was like, it's just easier, like less obstacles. Um, so that's another thing. I'm a, I'm a, hu- a huge advocate of the counseling compact, especially because I'm in New York and New York doesn't have any counseling compacts even on the table. And I'm like, we have like with with people moving and telehealth and tele, you know, an online virtual therapy, like there needs to be more cross state certification. It's crazy. Yeah, psychologists have it. Dentists have it, right? I mean, I think most medical professionals have it at this point, right? I mean, it's sort of worked into their licensure. But anyway, that's another episode. <laughs> um, so that's also okay. So and is there an, another what's the best way that people can get in touch with you and reach you? Yeah, so um, I have an Instagram account. Um, it's at therapist.karen, like C-A-R-Y-N on Instagram. That's kind of like where I'm most active, honestly, like my website just kind of exists as like a professional placeholder. I'm not I don't like blog, I would love to blog, I probably could blog. Because my captions are, are super long. They're essentially blog posts. <laughs> but again, that's a whole, you know, understandably, it's it's like another thing I have to do. But yeah, so that's that's kind of what I'm, I've been doing, private practice. Um, I've kind of been working on like different like workshops and mini courses as well. And so that's all kind of in the works. Oh, amazing. Okay, well, I'll put a link to your Instagram and your website. And if you're already writing Instagram captions, just make those your blog posts. Repurpose. I know. (laughs) In theory, I know that that would actually be super easy, right? But I think it's on my to-do list. Right? Well, I'm like, those are the things that never occur to me that you can do that. And then once in a while, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I could totally repurpose that stuff. But anyway. (laughs) <laughs> I think even in my head, I'm like, it's so daunting. And in reality, it would probably take like five minutes just to do. <laughs> I just got to do it. Right. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Karen. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.